This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hi, everyone. I have been wanting and waiting to create an episode like this for quite a while. The realm of eco-anxiety and climate grief feels like a necessary complement to all the conversations we've been having here on Life Worlds because it directly addresses the psychic terrain that will naturally reveal itself when we open up to the world, to the experiences of other species, and to feeling the earth in all of its wondrous intensities and textures. I think it might very well become my most intimate and naked introduction to any episode as yet on the show. And you might notice that this episode is also a little longer than our usual hour together. And I guess that this is because the subject of, of climate grief, of deep emotions, of the pain and the beauty of this moment in time, that all requires a special kind of attention from us. And this episode is here. It has as an intention to try and create signposts for this experience and to share with you that not only whatever you may be feeling is completely normal, but it is all necessary and part of the sacred act of waking up to life and acting on behalf of life. I've made sure that my conversation with our guest, Dr. Britt Ray, contains frameworks and real practical advice that you can carry into your daily world. The show notes are extensive, and I have a whole resource page on the website dedicated to climate grief where you can seek out practices, therapists, learning tools. So I encourage you to listen to the end of this episode, also where things get really rich, and to spend time after reading through it all, if that is something that calls to you. So let's get into it. I will admit with you that I'm in the thick and midst of this myself. I cannot count the number of times I've grieved the earth, that I've collapsed crying on the floor. All the times this happens when I actually let myself feel the atrocities I see happening around me. Even headlines of distant lands where entire livelihoods are charred by wildfires scattered to the winds and of communities who flee their homes because of severe droughts. These are humans I will never meet and places I barely knew existed. And yet somehow I feel them intimately as part of myself. Sometimes it feels like a direct blade to the chest. I've witnessed old growth clear cuts that make your heart tremble fumed on high streets watching people dash in and out of fast fashion stores and watching plastic tumbling out of landfill trucks. I've sat complicit in airlines grinding my teeth. I've written poems and eulogies and I've grinned and laughed and cried again and commemorated and continued onwards. 
a cycle that is the least linear thing I have ever known. It feels to me like there's someone who I love so much, and that someone is suffering and slowly dying. And in all honesty, I often feel like I can't talk about this with anyone. My road trip companions fall silent. People awkwardly shuffle around in their seats at dinner tables. Some platitudes may be uttered, and perhaps I'm not invited along again, maybe being seen as a downer on the group. And I get it. I get it. It's really, really hard to know what to say and how to respond when someone expresses their truth on how they're feeling about the world apparently unraveling in front of their eyes. Yes, this is a time of extinction, disintegration, suffering, a loss of bearings that can be entirely disorienting and disquieting. But grief, anger, frustration, confusion are all a healthy and sane and dignified response to the existential threats we face. On a very visceral level, people are feeling that the next decades and possibly hundreds of years will reveal a radically different earth. One in all of its tragedy, but also, as I will emphasize today, one in all of its potential. One of my great heroes, the Buddhist scholar, environmental activist, and just badass elder, Joanna Macy, said it best when she wrote, This is a dark time filled with suffering and uncertainty. Like living cells in a larger body, it is natural that we feel the trauma of our world. So don't be afraid of the anguish you feel or the anger or the fear, because these responses arise from the depth of your caring. Don't ever apologize for crying for the trees burning in the Amazon or over the waters polluted from mines in the Rockies. Don't apologize for what you feel. It is a measure of your humanity and your maturity. It is a measure of your open heart. And as your heart breaks open, there will be room for the world to heal. Within that, my friends, is the crux of the whole damn thing. We need to feel pain to feel the love. Grief points us towards what we care about, towards what is priceless, irreplaceable, irrevocable, towards the things that make life worth living. And that bring meaning to the infinity of space. I once wrote an article called Seasons of Our Souls, where I wrote that sadness is sacred. It is a homecoming. It takes our hands gently, firmly, and tells us, look here, look, look beyond the veils of ambition into your most intimate self. Look at the trees. They know. Look how they stand, strong and gracious, brilliantly naked in the first icy breaths of winter. In naked vulnerability, we become sculptural. It is in our grief that we sense into that totality and become intimate with our heart's deepest chambers. This is an initiation into something there is no doubt about it. Wound is part of passage, not the end in itself. As Martin Shaw says, it can rattle, scream, and shout, but there has to be a tacit blessing or a gift at its core. In the mythic, in the underworld journey, listen, by the way, to Darren's myth that we recorded and uploaded in the summer. In this mythic underworld journey, we are stripped bare by the gatekeepers to be left with nothing else than all that we are. So this is possibly a good thing, but my concern 
is that this initiation without the right support will go sideways. Two years ago, over half a survey of generations years agreed that humanity is doomed, quote unquote. In another poll, half of all respondents aged 16 to 25 said that their thoughts and feelings about climate change negatively affects their daily life and functioning. I mean, this means things like eating, concentrating, work, sleeping, studying, playing. A rampant mental health crisis is on the rise. And we have not yet developed the social and community infrastructure to handle it. When someone says that our trajectory of decline is irreversible, that there is nothing that they can do, that the day-to-day has become meaningless, or worse, that it's all f- anyway, and so why not gorge on a hedonistic final buffet before the last act drops? That scares me. We're going to be discussing this in the episode. This psychic numbing, this refusal to feel, it takes a really heavy toll. And as Britt Ray says, it impedes our capacity to act and to respond It depletes our resilience and imagination. It dampens our ability to summon the courage for transformation. The only thing I wish for so, so intensely is that we can harness these emotions to spur us into the most profound acts of love and service that the world has ever seen. Because we will need that energy to carry us through the portal of all that is to come and all that is already here. We need people to cultivate Care, connection, sensitivity, creativity on a heating planet where everything from water to space to food will become more scarce. We need open hearts and not closed walls. I know in every cell of my body that there is potential in this time. Rebecca Solnit, one of my favorite writers and anthropologists, describes hope in this way. Hope locates itself in the premise that we don't know what will happen, and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is the room to act. When you recognize uncertainty, you recognize that you may actually be able to influence the outcomes. You alone or you in concert with a few dozen or several million of others. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and knowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. It is the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact, are not things we can know. We may not, in fact, know them afterwards either. But they matter all the same, and history is full of people whose influence was most powerful after they were gone. That is my understanding and definition of hope, and that is what I live for. Even as I write this, sitting outside my parents' home, The sun rises over yet another day. The grass is crowned with a crystal carpet of dewdrops. A few dozen ducks swoop in magical display across the lake, and the feeling is of freshness and new beginnings. We will plant trees under whose shade we will not grow under. We will laugh and weep and ceremonialize and march and come together as community. The only thing that requires is that we feel everything and that we support as many others, as far and as wide, to do the same. That's it for me for now. Now about our guest, and on to the episode. Dr. Britt Ray is an author and a researcher who works at the forefront of climate change and mental health. She has become one of the leading voices in this space, and is director of the Special Initiative on Climate Change and Mental Health in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences of Stanford Medicine. 
Britt has advised Canadian federal ministers, the U.S. State Department, and multiple Fortune 500 companies. Her work in media has led her to host several podcasts, radio, TV programs with the BBC and the CBC, as well as writing Generation Dread, a viral newsletter about finding hope and taking meaningful action on the far side of climate grief. Over to me and Britt. I would love to start us off with something a little bit unexpected as I was reading your bio and your various works. This is something that people may not know about you if they haven't spent time Googling you, but you wrote a book in 2017 that was named one of the best books of the year by the New Yorker and Science News. You're actually wearing your science t-shirt right now, represent. Science is sexy, (laughs) says the t-shirt. And the book was on de-extinction. It was called Rise of the Necrofauna, the Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. So you're obviously incredibly well known now for your work around eco-anxiety and climate grief. But I'd love to understand why you wrote this book in 2017. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just really curious about the de-extinction piece and then how that maybe was tied already to the climate grief stuff. Can you just bring us into that a little bit? You did some impressive digging there, Alexa. (laughs) Yeah, happy to share. So... Essentially, if we we rewind to when I left home at 17 and went to university, I studied conservation biology. And for four years, I was thinking about the sixth mass extinction, biodiversity crisis, cared a lot about the non-human world or the more than human world, as we like to say, and was very discouraged and frustrated and sad about the anthropogenic impact of our activities on that more than human world, right? That was my first bout of what I now understand to be climate grief, of dealing with endangerment and extinction of various species and just complete disregard and lack of care from capitalist dominant society for these creatures. And fast forward a little bit from there, I end up going to art school. I go to OCAD in Toronto and I do this interdisciplinary master's and I get lit on fire with passion and inspiration for what this group of artists and designers are doing in a new field called synthetic biology. Because here we have these very bold statements from biotechnologists and engineers who say, we don't want to just do ad hoc tweaking of genes as we've been doing since the 1970s with genetic manipulation of living systems. We want to turn life into a substrate to control and engineer and bend into directions that are useful for us. So engineering organisms like microbes from scratch so that they can be biofuels or medicines, high value chemicals, things that we can put into detergents, whatever you call it, but also perhaps going beyond just trying to rig up monocellular, unicellular, things like microbes, we could move into complex life forms and we can start engineering extinct species back to life. So there were a bunch of artists and designers who were saying, well, if you're talking about designing life, why don't you actually involve some people who think critically around what design even means, and what the societal ethical implications of trying to engineer life could be. Not long after we got into the whole global debate around designer babies, we saw some rogue experiments in human embryos using some genetic manipulation tools. And it was fascinating to me. So I I did a PhD in science communication focusing on synthetic biology, this other 
wave of following where my biological interests were, which was very different from the old school conservation biology. But where the two met was around de-extinction and this idea of genetic rescue. So you could take the high-tech tools of synthetic biologists, match them with the really depressing story of being on a downward slope that the conservation biologists are telling us because we're not changing our ways and we're further endangering more species, imperiling our own in the process. And here at this nexus is something fascinating, troubling, puzzling. Is it possible? Could it be beneficial? Can we ward off all the unintended consequences of what it would mean to try and recreate close proxies of extinct species that we have made disappear so that we can put them back into environments that are failing now and bring back their productivity. So things like the woolly mammoth, the passenger pigeon, the Tasmanian tiger, the gastric brooding frog, many other species were being explored. Let's put it that way. Not necessarily worked on and achieved, de-extincted, but certainly various modes of activity were on all of these different species. And I just went to write a book about what it means to be one of these um, audacious scientists who's trying to bring back life from the dead, quote unquote. Of course, that's crude. That's not what they're doing. They're creating new animals that just mimic extinct species. But so it was a way that my two biological interests came together, really. Look, it's fascinating. And I've been following this company, Colossal, that's doing this. I love that term that you used, genetic rescue. For me, de-extinction is a really interesting psychological way of dealing with collapse where it's like, oh, but we can maybe bring things back that are gone. And there's a book, by the way, that I'm almost done reading. It's such a page turner. It's called um, The Venomous Lump Sucker. Have you read it? No. It's incredibly written. I'll send you after. And it's a this sort of dystopian book about what happens with the future of bi like biodiversity credits and de-extinction. And it takes a lot of the potential outcomes of that whole space in a whole kind of sci-fi direction. But I'm curious about the jump from, you know, extinction and de-extinction to climate grief work. Was there a connection between those two things? There's certainly a through line. Of course, grief is inherent to the idea of extinction and loss and grappling with what it means to reckon with a world that we have irreparably damaged and changed, which we see in my present work a lot. But as it pertained to conservation biology and species extinction, I didn't interrogate the new technological field of de-extinction as a hopeful act, as much as a, this is something that needs to be really critically examined because there's a lot of hype <laughs> and promissory narratives around how this could improve things without actually addressing the root causes of the problem simultaneously and in earnest. And we need to have more than just scientists with well-funded labs at Ivy League universities weighing in on what it means to treat the biodiversity crisis with a techno fix <laughs> and how we could make that a more robust solution, right? Uh, and, and I do see some parallel to ways that the climate solutions space also can get caught up in ideas about hype and technology coming into fixes without a radical transformation of our relationship to nature and the ways that we are operating and organizing our societies and treating each other, which is a much deeper, more revolutionary type of change that's required. So there's that kind of a connection. But also, yeah, I think it wasn't super conscious. But of course, when I look back on it, 
there is a deep reflection between the two about loss, about what it means to navigate turbulent change. And although the first book didn't explicitly deal with emotions, it was probably priming the pump for my then (laughs) gusher of emotions that would come later in the second book. Your second book is so brave and I have never, I think, taken so many notes from a book and tried to fit them into a (laughs) podcast episode, so I don't know how I'm going to do this. And you, you speak to this in the book a little bit, but before I started reading it, I noted down this question to myself, and I was like, you know, eco-anxiety, is that the right term? And I held that question as I read your book. You know, you've mentioned already in this conversation, rescue, loss, turbulence, all of these other emotions, grief, you know, eco-anxiety might bundle it into, oh, it's just an anxiety. And somehow I feel like climate collapse, ecosystem collapse is obviously a lot more, it's just deeply existential. And as you say, it can also give people a sense of like looming unease, right? There's not an imminent thing, but there's this looming sense that something is just so wrong. And so I'd be curious, because we're going to be using language as we speak in in this conversation, what's been your experience around the term eco-anxiety or eco-grief as you navigate this terrain, both personally and professionally? It's a really good question. There are so many interesting threads to pull in order to answer it. First and foremost, eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, which are rather interchangeably used, Of course, one relates to wider registers of environmental problems than just climate. That's the eco-anxiety and climate anxiety specific to climate. But this is what the media and pop culture has really hung on to in order to describe this unease within so many of us today. And there are a few issues with it, including that anxiety quickly brings to mind a mental disorder. Many people will take away from that some kind of pathology some kind of generalized anxiety disorder that a psychiatrist might give you a diagnosis for and that you could actually dismiss with a pill or some other kind of psychological intervention. And researchers and clinicians in this space have stood up to say, ardently, no, this is not a mental disorder. It is an appropriate and reasonable response to feel some anxiety about what is going on. Because as you say, there's just something deeply wrong (laughs) with what we are facing. And so it's adaptive, right? It it points out something that needs some attention and resources and mobilization in order to fend off the danger. So that's number one, is that it can confuse people and make them disregard its appropriateness and try to belittle people who are feeling it or self-expressing as being climate or eco-anxious, basically saying they're mentally ill, so (laughs) don't pay attention. Another issue is that many people who historically marginalized, oppressed, excluded groups, Black and Indigenous people of color, residents of the Southern Hemisphere who are disproportionately affected by the frontline effects of climate disaster already, have often said, climate anxiety does not describe what I'm going through. This is survival, yes, no, stress, terror, panic, trauma, grief, real loss. This is not some imagined hellscape of a future that I'm moving towards. I don't have the space to contemplate such a future because something is on my doorstep now trying to rob me of life, livelihood, property, security. And therefore, a more encompassing term to that traumatic impact would feel more authentic and reflective of the experience. 
those are hugely important critiques to take seriously. And of course, I think it it is not necessary to have a catch-all term that speaks to everyone's experience because we are not a monolith and we have intersectional identities that shape how we relate to these global crises. But it is helpful that crudely there's something out there that can start a public conversation that rises above the surface. So it's not just an underground concern, but is something that world leaders and researchers, policymakers, activists can all roughly describe together, which so far has become climate anxiety. And it helps to propel a conversation which is needed in order to affect change. So I'm not super against the term, but I do find it more helpful to switch over to climate distress, eco-distress, this encapsulating umbrella, which can fold in the truth, which is that there are many co-occurring so-called negative emotions that a person can cycle through when confronting the climate and ecological crises. So yes, anxiety, grief, terror, panic, fear, sadness, rage, right? Outrage, anger, sometimes a sense of helplessness, guilt, shame, all these things. And you also, speaking about other words that describe, you gave a word to something that I've never been able to describe before in myself. So again, just proof that language is very useful. You spoke about this thing called pre-traumatic stress. And in your book, you write, you know, I would see a beautiful picture of a coral reef or some other mountains covered with trees. And rather than thinking, wow, that's so beautiful, that's so awesome, you would think, oh my God, the ocean acidification will kill the reefs, the marine life will die, and the mountains will be deforested. And it's been so interesting because the last, I don't know, year or years, it's the same where I'll see something so exquisitely wonderful and I'll just sort of fast forward into some weird version or some possible version of the future where that thing is like suffering or dying. Or So I loved, in a weird way, I love this term pre-traumatic stress because I'm like, yeah, I, I'm not in a country where people are drowning and dying. I mean, yet, thank, I mean, gosh, I'm so freaking lucky. But I am experiencing this pre-traumatic stress. And so that brings me to part one of your book. You have this awesome title and it says, Feel It All. I think the reason why I can experience this pre-traumatic stress is because I've allowed myself to feel a lot. I've cycled through these things more times than I can count. And you, you say the first crucial step towards becoming an engaged steward of the planet is connecting with our emotions, seeing them as a sign of our humanity, and learning how to live with them. It can spur us to action, and it's an adaptive response. So, Britt, why is it important, despite how challenging it may be, that we, quote-unquote, feel it all? In Western society in particular, this is very crucial, because there is a deep belittlement of emotions in our culture. There is a headstrong, rationalist, masculinist approach to dealing with life, which can be managed. And emotions that come up are extracted as artifactual noise. People are made to be feeling ashamed of them. They're feminized. They're weak. There's a deep, deep history from the scientific enlightenment until now that makes this so. And it not only denies what's really going on within people because we actually have a lot of, you know, cognitive psychology. It, it shows us that we do make decisions from emotions. We're not just, we're deeply un- irrational creatures, really. 
However, on climate specifically, we've known about this problem for many, many, many decades, right? We have had global convenings about it, meant to create cooperation among nations and draw our emissions down for as long as I've been alive, pretty much. And look at where we are. The emissions just keep going up. The fossil fuel infrastructure is still expanding. The rationalist approach is not working because there's a lot of perversity baked in. There's a lot of denial and entrenched interests and bought politicians and lobbyists and so on and so forth. But there's also soft denial that lives within us, the general populace, because humans have always need to lie to themselves a little bit to get by when reality is tough to bear. It's adaptive to be able to have these psychological defenses that are predominantly unconscious, that allow us to be protected from anxiety, pain, intolerable emotions, because life is painful, right? It's joyous and painful at once, as Buddhism will teach us, and you can't separate that. They're both just an aspect of what it means to be here. But we don't like the uncomfortable stuff. And in this situation, we see that many people are not confronting climate head on. Is it because they don't care? Are we really all that apathetic? Do we really all not at all get deeply, deeply disturbed by the sense of creating an unlivable future and passing on a horrendously dangerous planet to our children and the next generations and making all these species go extinct? No, we do care. <laughs> Many people care. At Renee Lertzman, the climate psychologist, talks about this as the myth of apathy. What this really articulates is that when we are forced to confront, let's say that we're working in a polluting job, you know, maybe we're tied to the fossil fuel industry. Maybe we have a car with a combustion engine. Maybe we buy foods that come from faraway places. Maybe we take flights. You know, we are living at a time where the unsustainable way is promoted as the only way. And it's a very wasteful society that we are trying to transform to greener, more regenerative ways. But we're so far from the mark that when we then acknowledge our own complicity, we get a lot of anxiety, ambivalence, shame, guilt coming up. And it's painful. And instead of sitting with those emotions, learning how to name them, allow them to be there, sit with them long enough that their insights can emerge and we can actually reorient our lives around addressing those feelings, we thwart them. We shove them under the surface. We succumb to soft denial, to disavowal. This is what climate psychologists talk about, is having one eye open to the truth and the other eye simultaneously closed. So, you know, we read about horrifying climate tipping points that we could be surpassing that will unleash cascades of unstoppable change. We believe that we must act on this immediately, mobilize all resources, get our governments into emergency mode. And then simultaneously, we don't think that anything that terrible will really come to pass because it's kind of unthinkable. And then we shunt that from our consciousness, put it away, and we hop on the next plane and go on living our lives and doing what's convenient in the present moment and feels easy or fun, joyous, what have you. So it's that being split and being stuck in the ambivalence and the muck of these mixed emotions without the emotional intelligence or wisdom or guidance to be able to feel them 
and instead just try and get away from them as quickly as possible. That we see in our culture when people are not talking about the climate crisis at the dinner table, when they are not talking about it with their local representatives, when it isn't a lens through which they are seeing the world day to day, given how obvious the external danger of the situation has now become. So in all those ways, we really need to just be compassionate with ourselves and each other and create spaces, supportive ways that we can sit with the discomfort and the uncertainty about how horrific this may become so that we don't get stuck in that stalled place where we just keep kicking the can down the road. Because as others have called this, the predatory delay of serious action on the climate means that we maintain our comfort in the present moment at the expense of the future becoming terrifying. And unfortunately, that's a really great way of describing how we've been acting on the climate for the last 40 plus years. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, the the human psychology and how good we are at creating all sorts of mechanisms, all sorts of mechanisms. And you know, it, in this feeling at all, we're going to speak next about why actually feeling the emotions is deeply empowering and why we probably won't create a new future unless we can harness that kind of force. What you're referring to, I think, are these maladaptive responses, right, to feeling it all. I see kind of two main ones. There's either shutdown or there's overwhelm. Yeah. There's shutdown, which is what you've been speaking about. I thought about it in terms of these Ds like doom, dissonance, denial, despair. Um, you're calling it soft denial, myth of apathy. And in your book, you say, you know, there are these different parts of ourselves that can create these lying relationships with each other. And, you know, there's like 10 Alexas inside of me and they're all like, well, this is fine. Well, this is not. And you kind of have this like inner counsel that's in argumentation or you get the overwhelm. I mean, you work in the activist space. So have I, I work in a biology, biodiversity and climate lab. So you also see people who are on the front lines or witnessing the death of the beings that they work with on a day-to-day basis. And this fear and this dread, I think, knocks us out so much that one thing is shutting down and the other one is just becoming so overwhelmed that we can't act. And so before I move on to the positive, not positive, but the sort of empowering part of how people can hold these emotions and then different spaces that you've written about, just one question that came up as I think about the overwhelm piece. What do you tell people when they say there's a sense of inevitability, right? Like the earth is doomed, that extinction is a given, it's too late, we're at the 11th hour, my day-to-day is meaningless. Is there such a thing as a, a right degree of panic or despair or, just, or can people be overly pessimistic? For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very easy to be overly pessimistic about this polycrisis, if whatever you want to call it. I like that term. <laughs> Encapsulates a lot. Firstly, I try to have compassion for those people because I've felt that. Haven't we all felt that? Yep. I mean, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah, totally. The critical thing is to not get stuck there and to keep moving. But if it's where you are for a day or a week, you know, you can be gentle with yourself, but there's far more nourishing stories to let in, which are also grounded in truth and not just hocus pocus, wishful thinking to try and ease your psychological state. So something that was very helpful and sobering and grounding and strengthening 
that I experienced from writing my book was interviewing many people and reading the accounts of many communities who long lived under the shadow of existential threat and on the knife's edge of having the security and safety and lives taken from them at any moment, whether it's because they're living under an authoritarian regime or they're the survivors of genocide, colonization, slavery, intergenerational trauma. You cannot argue (laughs) with, let's say, descendants of the transatlantic slave trade, Jim Crow, colonial apartheid, who say, yeah, like what Olufemi Taiwo, a scholar of climate colonialism, told me when I interviewed him for the book. He said, yeah, you know, what's happening today is neocolonial and not in any way just, and the future does look dire. But in fact, because of my ancestry and everything that we've lived through, it's in fact not as bad right now or looking forward than it has been historically for us. And so there is a sky is falling mentality that is precluded from that political position. And the same message would come up when interviewing a variety of different indigenous leaders, especially because a lot of my work is focused on my own personal climate anxiety spike coming from the question of whether or not to have a child and bring them into this situation. And, you know, reproductive hesitation is very mainstream now with our youth. And I think it's an urgent indicator of how hard pressed people are feeling. And it is a fallout from the institutional betrayal that we see on the climate as leaders, power holders are not doing what the science says must be done to protect young people's future. So it's a reasonable question that many young people are having when they say they're not sure if they want to have kids and bring them into this world. But when posing that to various Indigenous leaders, I heard many say, I have not heard anyone in my community asking whether or not we should bring children into this world over the climate concerns, because this is not the end of the world. The end of the world already happened, right? We've already lived through the apocalypse. And that was when white men came, took our land, wouldn't let us speak our language, have our traditions, took our children, separated them from us, put them in residential school, and created these cycles of ongoing intergenerational trauma. Like that is the end of the world. We've already strengthened ourselves and arrived here today on the other side of that. And so it's our responsibility or it's my deep conviction that I need to pass on this long lineage of tradition to the future. And that's through children. And, you know, these kinds of perspectives are just, wow. It just shows that the human spirit, what we're capable of, you know, what no matter how far against the wall you're pushed, there is always something more to fight for. It doesn't ever disappear. And you don't know what you're going to create when you come together in community and fight for your existence. So many possibilities emerge that you could not have foreseen at the moment of being in rock bottom. So the climate system is also part of a bigger interlocking set of complex systems. And we humans are not sophisticated enough to understand exactly how our actions are gonna pan out in the future. So while we have a lot of really good scientific predictions about how bad and dire this is becoming, and we can square that with the lack of effective action, and then we can apply logic and see that this is not good, we also cannot foresee all the beautiful, wonderful potentials in our midst and ways of having islands of sanity and resilience and community, even if things do collapse, right? And being able to bring on joyful existence and forms of love and 
all of those great things. So yeah, I think sharing with someone those kinds of ideas, um, it certainly helped me when I've been feeling super pessimistic in the past. And I find that usually people will give those ideas airtime, even when they're feeling fatalistic. Yeah, I hear that. I think something that maybe some of the people you've interviewed for more marginalized communities, what they traditionally have done very well and what we, I think, in a more Western context have forgotten is communal rituals, communal practices. And there's two things that come to mind here. The first is it's very true what you've said that access to therapy is a justice issue in itself because it's a sort of one-on-one thing. I have to be able to afford a therapist and all that kind of stuff. But actually, I truly believe that healing is done in community as community. And as we see an increasing amount of humans experiencing a very adaptive and very fair, as you said in the beginning, forms of grief and terror and you know all of the emotions, anger, there's a need for non-experts and for communities to hold these processes and do that together. And that's kind of the second part, which is I've been trained in some of Joanna Macy's work, and I also did the Good Grief Network, their 10 steps. Uh, I did the training, when was it, last year? What we see there is something you also speak quite a bit about, which is what does it look like to come together as a community to grieve and to mourn and to process, both in terms of how we hold this and how we grieve what's been lost and move forward. So I'd love to speak a little bit about that and then maybe talk about mindfulness after because mindfulness is, is slightly different to this. In the resource page this episode linked, there'll be a lot on things like the death cafes or climate emotion cafes and the Good Grief Network. But maybe you can speak to both what Good Grief does or some of Joanna Macy's work, you know, the work that reconnects and the role that you see for community catharsis versus I'm sitting with my therapist and I'm kind of alone and I'm trying to figure it out. Absolutely. So the Good Grief Network, which was created by Laura Schmidt and Amy Lewis Rowe as a way to tend to their own grief because there is nothing out there that could help them (laughs) when confronting their own emotions about the climate crisis. They drew on their experiences of sitting in the rooms of alcohol, Al-Anon, Children's of Alcoholics. And they knew the power and the transformative connective tissue of what happens in those rooms to heal people. Particularly, Laura created a, a master's project where she unpacked how this AA approach could be applied to climate grief and anxiety and came up with a 10-step program that moves people through different thematic pillars week by week for 10 weeks. You sit in a Zoom room with with strangers who you create this safe connective bond with over that time. And I think the first theme is confront the mortality of all, like the mortality of yourself and of uh, the impermanence of things, essentially, of living systems. And then the next step is something like acknowledge that I am part of the problem and part of the solution and, and on and on it goes throughout the 10 steps. And people are invited to share whatever is on their heart without any fear of someone challenging them, belittling them, dismissing them, telling them they're being dramatic, so on and so forth. The idea is that you can take what you like as a participant and leave the rest. If you don't like what someone is sharing, that's fine. But you just 
don't retaliate. And this way you create some, just a safe space, essentially, where people can have their distress contained by others. And many people find it extremely powerful because by the end of the 10 sessions, you are brought on a journey to reinvest all that energy that you've lost from being so stressed out about the climate crisis that you can shift it and channel it for meaningful and purposeful actions that you self-define at this time. And Joanna Macy is their mentor and also just a real originator wellspring of inspiration for so many people who are doing peer-to-peer support in the climate grief space. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's brilliant in the work that reconnects is all about helping us touch grief, helping us move in towards the danger and the pain, because there is that paradoxical truth that when you touch the radical vulnerability of things, you are brought more alive. Mm Mm-hmm in the present moment. Joanna Macy is like one of my living idols. You know, they always say like, if you could have dinner or whatever with someone, who would it be? Mm-hmm. As you say, she has this honoring our pain, seeing with new eyes going forth. And in the, in the introduction to this episode, I might tell this story, but for my birthday this year in July, I basically lassoed a bunch of my friends, made them feel guilty that they couldn't cancel because it was my birthday. And I brought in a facilitator to help us do the Council of All Beings, which is a, a community grief ritual around the perils that other forms of life may find themselves in, but you embody their perspective. And it's interesting because Good Grief Network is one thing, you know, Joanna's work is another, but I think what these things have in common is you get this community cohesiveness and this witnessing and being witnessed in what you're feeling, which is so, 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 so important, right? And I've been thinking a lot about this and then I, I was super happy to see them. Well, not happy, but it was a conversation I wanted to have with you and I saw you write about it in your book, you know, you said we're losing species, glaciers, landscapes, food and water, etc. There's no norms or socially organized ways to process these losses. And you mentioned um, with AIDS, it was this conscious creation of public acts of mourning, public testimonies and eulogies, funerals, memorials. And then you say mourning is more than movement through grief. It is a way to mobilize, standing with community and ritual. And I thought, it, I'd never thought about this, but you in the ways that there was this public morning around AIDS that actually helped us mobilize, I would love us to see, you know, I would love to see us create these community rituals around extinction, whatever it may be, to also be part of mobilization and having communities just be with each other again. Exactly. And we are so starved for rituals and communal permission-giving spaces in which we can grieve. These difficult emotions, we always seem to want to bypass them when we're in public or when we're together. So we we are in the business now, not literally business, but <laughs> it is our task to create new norms for experiencing grief together. And there is so much inspiring history that can show us how great the co-benefits can be for the climate movement itself and not just for people's own psycho-spiritual movement. So yeah, HIV AIDS activists brought it from being this epidemic that was killing mainly marginalized people, right? Queer folks, drug users, to something that the president of the United States could not ignore and had to name an epidemic. And it was through getting loud and putting on drag shows and protests and disruptive artistic exhibitions. And there is a real cost to not talking about things loudly. Because when we don't 
proclaim and show the grief of our losses, it means that they don't matter that much. And so they remain unnoticed and undealt with. Black Lives Matter, right? What have they done? Say her name over and over again, right? Like Breonna Taylor, so many other people, of course, who have unfortunately lost their lives because of police violence. It has been a tactic not only to help people mourn collectively, but to point out that these people and their lives matter. And therefore, pick up your sign and join us. And this is what I mean by it being more than a movement through grief. It's a platform that you can extend to others to join you and mobilize. And so in the book, I write about this group in the UK who created something called Remembrance Day for Lost Species. And they wanted to create a a funny kind of time out of time, as they say, where we could come together and mourn the fact that humans are killing all these beautiful creatures and they would create effigies for specific species on specific years and read poetry and march in the streets and do parades and have bonfires and light the effigies and then send them into the sea or what have you, something ceremonial in a country and culture that doesn't do that <laughs> around anything. As, as their founder, Persephone Pearl said, you know, they've been raised to only think about shopping for birthdays and Christmases and things like that as ceremonies, which is just very, very starved. And so the idea is to then follow what they've done. Hey, that started out as an esoteric gathering in 10 or so years ago, and it has since grown to be a global movement where in November on the the 30th of every year, there are many, many dozens of chapters around the world doing this. And um, what does that mean for all of us as we try to create ceremonies and rituals to grapple with the the pain of what's being lost, but not to say, hey, all this is, is reckoning with the losses, but it's about also moving to the far side of grief and saying what remains and how can we mobilize to protect it? Well, I mean, you only grieve what you care for, you know, and it's um, like this Khalil Gibran, you know, the prophet, that book has accompanied me for so many years. And he says, the deeper that sorrow carves into your cup, the more that you can fill it with joy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this dance between grief and love. They are part and parcel of each other. And I think that goes back to, you know, you mentioned Buddhism. Um, Buddhism has also been a part of my life practice for a while now. And not viewing any emotion as right or wrong, good and bad, it's so ingrained in us. Oh, I, you know, your friend's upset, you're right? And you're like, don't worry, you'll get over it. Yeah. I, I, I really had to unlearn how to say that. And I'd be like, oh, what is it like there? How does it feel? What are you learning about yourself by being sad? Cool that you're sad. And you kind of see the other person be like, wait, what? And I'm like, awesome that you're sad. Like, what's there? And that's what I've loved about Buddhism and I'm sure many other faiths and practices, but I've just known it through Buddhism, which is curiosity and care for whatever emotion is there, but that gap in the response between intense love or intense grief, you take a gap and you view it. And I'm going to weave in another thing here, which... You know, Martin Shaw, the myth teller, poet, writer, he's uh, UK based. Mm -hmm. He has this quote that I was thinking a lot about as I was reading your book. And he speaks about this tale, right? That to become a sovereign of Ireland, you had to attach a chariot to wild horses. Have you heard of this? This story or myth or picture? No. Yes, to become a sovereign, you had to attach your chariot to these two wild horses. And one would pull you one way, the other one would pull you on the other. And that a sovereign would reveal his spiritual maturity and readiness for the task by harnessing the tension of both of these horses 
for a third way to reveal itself. Mm. And, you know, he says, the holy strain of both impulses created the royal road to Tara, a road that culture could process down. And so I think in this conversation, we've been talking a lot about grief. And I would love to, for us to touch a little bit on the second horse, this love, right? Balancing ourselves out with beauty and care and joy and carving this middle path. Um, I don't know if this is similar to what you describe as binocular vision, but what have you seen in your work where we aren't doing this out of grief or anger or whatever, but we're also doing it out of love and care? And, and, and how do you see those two dancing with each other? I think it's a lot like quantum physics. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? <laughs> it's both. The middle path being an awareness of the truth of the gray zone between the black and white being capacious enough to allow you to be in both and neither. Mm. <laughs> and so it is fluid. You can move quickly. It's not about never being in all joy or never being in all grief. But sometimes you're actually able to, in a very kind of bittersweet sense, touch both simultaneously. <laughs> and I agree with what you're saying about carving your cup deep enough that you can fill it with joy. Because if we don't stretch the elasticity of our emotional range, it, it is almost symmetrical, right? Mm -hmm. Like how far we can bleed into experiencing these registers of human affect while it balances itself. If we, if we restrain ourselves out of fear for grief so much that we cannot, we cannot explore, we cannot dive in, then we are also muted on the side of joy and love and connection in almost equal parameter. <laughs> so there's something really beautiful about being able to just open yourself. But it does mean, of course, being there for what Donna Haraway would call, you know, staying with the trouble. <laughs> and I don't think the binocular vision is much more other than allowing yourself the fluid flick of your finger so that you can change lenses between despair and hope. Could you quickly, I heard you do this on another podcast I listened to and I loved it. Could you do the binocular vision thing with us? Because you write about it in your book. What is that flickering, you know, like through these different visions? So there was um, a psychologist, Sherry Weber Nicholson, who wrote about binocular vision based on the work of psychoanalyst named Wilfred Behan. And essentially, what he was originally talking about was how there's this huge difference between how we behave in groups and how we behave when we're alone. And the binocular vision he was talking about was allowing for a psychoanalyst to have a change of view, just like binoculars. Imagine binoculars on a microscope. You know how you have the circle at the bottom of the microscope that you can twist and then you can go up in magnification? And also you have the stage on which you put the thing that you're looking at and you can turn it up and down. And as you turn it up and down, you kind of see different layers of what's in the sample. So say I took in some algae off the lake, put it on a slide, put it on the microscope, and then I raised the stage and lowered it. I could see different aspects of what's in that algae at different levels that the, the lens could see through. But it's all true, even though it's not visible to the naked eye, unless I'm doing that upward and downward motion on the microscope. So in dynamics where humans are together in groups, it's the same thing. You have to be able to see how people are 
surfacing their behavior and their psychology for the group, but they're also individuals within that group. And you kind of zoom in and zoom out to the various tensions of authenticity of their psychological experience and behavior, which are codified and kind of changed by being in a group. And then (laughs) extrapolating from all of that to where we are now, I see that tension of being able to zoom in and zoom out of the same substrate on that microscope being that at one level, we can feel the despair, the pessimism, the fatalism, we can get overwhelmed and have that be maybe rooted in an accurate read of some of the scientific implications. And then we can simultaneously also lift to another layer of what is simultaneously true which is about how much there is to save, how much love, connection, and beauty and joy, you know, the emergent possibilities that are nourishing, transformative potentials for global systems, and that these things are there together. But we get lost sometimes on only one image. So being able to have mindfulness practices, non-dualistic ways of being, having the perspective and capacity to hold it all, to have a wide range of emotional register, um, to have sat with our climate distress and, and all the different emotions that are part of it and get familiar with the fact that we toggle. We toggle in and out. We move back and forth. And over time, we become familiar with that back and forth motion, which is strengthening in itself. So all of that becomes available to us consciously, mindfully, when we have binocular vision and we are able to sit at that microscope and examine ourselves rather than just be hijacked by it. And that's what happens to a lot of people. We get hijacked by the despair. We get hijacked by the pessimism. And we think there's nothing else for a time. I think it's such a cool metaphor, if you will, or or frame of reference. And as you were speaking, I was imagining like, okay, you're zooming in, you're zooming out. But there's also a moment like I was very gimpy with my microscopes in school. and, And when they go fuzzy, and I actually think there's also like in, in that fuzziness where you're not in either of those visions, mm-hmm. it's all messy. And I think that for me, you spoke about complex systems is like, we have no clue <laughs> about what's going to happen, about the emergent phenomena of so many people caring, so many people coming online. And one of the other people I respect immensely is Rebecca Solnit. And she wrote this little book, Hope in the Dark, um, about possibilities. And uh, I think you referenced her somewhere uh, when I was reading you mm-hmm. and her definition of hope. I always was like, I don't believe this word hope. It kind of seems like fake optimism. And and actually, her definition of hope is what I resonate with, which is for me that fuzzy microscope vision, which is we just can't know what anything is going to lead to. And in that unknowing, in that complete sheer unpredictability is so much pregnancy and potential. And I think we forget about that in linear, you know, action plans. And trust me, I I implement those as well in my work sometimes, but there's these sort of, you know, 10 paths to X and blah, blah, blah. But truly, if the history of humanity, as you've spoken about in other, other communities as well, shows us anything, it's that we can't predict what's going to happen in every single potential way. Absolutely not. Which is not just a true scientific property of complex systems, that when you have a small shift here, all kinds of emergent cascading change that you cannot see at the outset may become reality a little bit further down the line. But it also correlates with these histories of social justice struggles that we were talking about earlier. You know, people who are fighting for their existence and their community's ability to 
thrive in the future at the outset could not possibly know that they would be able to prevail or understand the emergent politics of a civil rights movement or what have you. And yeah, I, I very much agree with what Rebecca is saying there. And it has been very heartening for me to listen to complexity scientists and systems thinkers talk about this because when we are dealing at the level of complexity science, it's not linear change that we're dealing with. And so Thomas Homer Dixon, who's a well-known Canadian complexity scientist, even just points out the strange proof of this around Greta Thunberg. Because one day, a few years ago, there was a 15-year-old Swedish depressed girl who went to her parliament with a sign and sat alone saying school strike for the climate because she just could not take it anymore that there was no action. But she didn't have a lot of friends. She wasn't an organizer. She was just acting on her moral conviction. And who would have possibly thought that such a humble action taken from a child in a country that is by no means insignificant, but not a world-leading power, (laughs) would end up creating a global movement of not only students striking for the climate in the millions, but she would be invited to speak at the highest levels of government at the UN, at the World Economic Forum, having meetings with prime ministers and presidents. And that is just an absurd thing to predict from that outcome. And although we still haven't seen the climate crisis be solved as a result of that action, it of course is still something that people are talking about every single day. She has talked about every single day, as are her contemporaries who are really shaking things up and what the climate movement looks like. So yeah, hope is about not knowing and being able to trust in the not knowing and ease the grip off of this certainty. So one last thing I just want to quickly say is that a lot of the fatalism, pessimism, doomerism that we see is a coping mechanism around uncertainty (laughs) because the human brain hates uncertainty, right? For good evolutionary reason, the pop psychology explanation is that if we were cave people still and a tiger was going to jump out from a bush and eat us at any moment, uncertainty about whether or not that would happen would make us very hypervigilant with stress. You're always trying to make a calculation. Oh, how to protect myself so I don't just die instantaneously. So we like certainty. We like to move with a certain element of control. However, there's a lot of uncertainty about how tumultuous the climate system will become, how nations will respond, when, you know, how our families will be affected and so on and so forth. And instead of being able to sit with that uncertainty comfortably, the mind often does what's called splitting and it will split into black and white potentials. One being techno-optimism or very bright, hopeful, don't worry about it, kind of downplaying, you know, we've got responsible people on the problem, humans have always pulled through in the past, and that approach can really belittle the amount of work that's needed right now to grapple with this, and it leaves many concerned people feeling somewhat abandoned. And then on the other side, we can go full black, just it's all done for, earth is hospice, Societal collapse is inevitable and near-term, doomism, you name it. But the thing is that then at least you can land your feet somewhere that feels 
certain, right? You can rest because you know what's going on. You're not in that hypervigilant space of waiting for the tiger. Like, I don't know what's going to happen and how to react here. And so what we have to do is learn to sit with the uncertainty, which is what the Good Grief Network and Joanna Macy are also really great at helping people do, sit with that uncertainty and whatever emotions of difficulty that might bring up and then integrate them and hold that tension and live in that gray space and be in that third path, essentially, that you are referring to. And that third path... I know we're almost at time. There is one question I absolutely must get to before we close. For me, that third path is a little bit held in, in the name of this podcast, Life Worlds. And you referenced it in something you wrote, which is, you know, you said, we're being summoned to a story of reconnection, love, and re-enchantment with the world. And in a way, stopping to notice the beauty and the intelligence of creatures beyond our smaller human sphere, that is the work of sincere, profound connection. And so... For me, that third path, um, because I veer through all sorts of stuff emotionally all the time. I'm like a gooey mess. <laughs> but that third path, that it, for me, is the life world's name, which is this world is so freaking beautiful, even now, every single day, no matter what. Can we learn to see that and just have that be our base of operation? And so the question I want to get to is, for you, what is that third path? I know that you're doing this work at Stanford. I would love for you to share before we close the episode, where are you taking your incredible articulations and heart and mind in, in your next steps? What should we be looking out for? Where are you pouring your energies? Thank you for the, the layup there <laughs> um, to share some of the work we're doing. So I'm very excited about some work that we're doing in New Orleans with community members there and community health workers to support residents who are dealing with frontline climate disasters and still talk about the world in terms of there was life pre-Hurricane Katrina and post-Hurricane Katrina, which was such a traumatic demarcation. 2005 is when that storm happened. And they've, of course, had many hurricanes since and they're dealing with sea level rise and tornadoes and heat waves and all kinds of things. And um, the people that we're working with are also dealing with systemic racism and historical marginalization and health inequities from the climate impacts. And so what does it mean to work with community members who guide a process of co-creating a community-minded healing intervention for climate traumas and distress? And we've done a pilot project around these climate conversations. These, again, it's about coming together in groups and holding the grief together and finding what emerges from that, which is great and really fulfilling work. And there's some really interesting findings about how people are, are dealing and why they see value in, in space making like this that otherwise doesn't exist, um, especially when some people are coming to talk about the climate crisis for the first time and realizing how deeply it's impacting their mental health ways that communities can emerge with appetites for hopeful actions and community resilience building practices that we can support each other with. And when I say we, I mean academic community partnerships, how the academics sides can come in with research capital to support that work that they self-define and want resources for. And then I'm also really excited about in early days of creating a climate distress intervention for youth specifically. A lot of my work the last couple of years has been focusing on understanding the problem, measuring the problem, you know, looking in different populations and samples around the world to understand what climate anxiety looks like. But now I'm really going into the intervention space to try and bring about community-based solutions. We've got this new initiative focused on climate change and mental health in the medical school at Stanford. 
just launched a couple months ago. If anyone out there is doing community-minded public health approaches to dealing with climate traumas and climate distress and wants to be in touch, uh, I would be delighted. So is your idea that you're both gathering existing approaches that are out there that people are doing and bringing them into a repository of knowledge that's maybe housed inside of Stanford and you're going out and piloting approaches with communities that you can then create a blueprint from that can be brought to other communities. Is that kind of the two main areas? Yeah, exactly. Like on the former side, we, we're doing reviews of existing interventions and things that people are using that seem to be working, understanding why. And then secondly, by doing site-specific work with particular communities, we hope to create findings that give us lessons that we can spread to other communities, even though, of course, everything needs to be adapted and specific to the needs of the people in, in any one place. Okay, awesome. These are things that I will follow up with you on and, and put them into the show notes and onto the Life Worlds resource page so people can, can easily find it. We don't have to get into it now. Oh, nice. Thank you. Britt, there are so many other things I wanted to speak with. Maybe we'll have another conversation. Obviously, having a child um, is something that was a big part of your adventure. We didn't get to this now. And yeah, there are other very interesting psychological responses that I've been tracking, things like eco-terrorism. And I think there are just, there's a lot more to get into here. But in, in the space of this conversation, we'll end it there. I'm a fangirl of what you're doing. So seriously, thank you for giving voice in such a wise way to a whole movement. And I know that mustn't be easy to also become representative of something so massive. So I really hope that you, and I'm sure that you have a lot of inner resilience to, to hold all that as well. Thank you so much, Alexa. Thank you for the care that you put into this conversation and preparing for it. And you have a really delightful presence. It was really nice to hang out with you for this last hour. And yeah, please be in touch anytime. I'd love to. So let's end there, my friends. I will leave you with a question from Brit. Are we going to let our feelings overrun and deplete us? Or are we going to use those feelings to overrun the systems that are making us so unwell? I know what I'm choosing. I choose active hope, where we come from gratitude, where we honor our pain, where we learn to see the world with new eyes, and then we go forth gloriously gloriously. Be well, and please reach out to me if this has brought up anything you want to comment or talk about. I'm here with love.